the Sunday Sermons Podcast. We all have that one friend. Some of you are already giggling. You don't even know what I mean by that, but that's because you really know what I'm talking about. We all have somebody in our lives. Maybe it's a spouse or a sibling, a parent, somebody we work with, but they're just always wide open. They're always just, there's no filters involved. How many, how many know what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah. That's all of us. And by the way, welcome to every single one of you. There's so many new faces out there as well as all the faces that we know. And, and what, every one of you is welcome. Those of you joining online, we're so thankful you're here today. But we all have so much in common, no matter how diverse our backgrounds is. And this is one of those. We all know somebody like this. And all the rest of us are simultaneously really admiring of them and wishing we could be like them and absolutely terrified of them most of the time, right? Just, oh, please don't say anything. But you know what I'm talking about? Jesus had a friend like that. His name was Peter. Actually, his name was Simon, and Jesus renamed him Peter, which means rock. And I think one of the reasons is probably because like, like a rock... It is what it is. And if it's here, it's, it's being a rock right there. And if it's here, it's being a rock right there. And the really amazing thing about Peter's life is Jesus was able to transform him. And when somebody is wide open and just honest and has no filters, you can see it a little clearly. I'm sure all the other disciples changed just as much as Peter, but we have so many stories about Peter because he was so wide open. Are you following me on this? This morning, we're going to read from uh, some of the letters that he wrote. Actually, he didn't write them. He dictated them. But Peter, when you first meet him in the Gospels, to Peter in Acts, totally different person. And, And this person that's sharing these thoughts toward the end of his life and sending them out to the churches, and eventually they came to us as first and second Peter, was completely transformed by God. He writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And like Jesus before him, his mentor, his friend, his savior, Peter mentions heaven and he Obviously leaves that as the ultimate reward and it's wonderful and it's something that Jesus gives us. But he spends most of his time, the rest of these letters, talking about all that God has designed for us here and now. This new birth, this new inheritance is about now and then eventually also in heaven. I hope you see that in there. If you kept reading this whole passage, and I wish we had time to just read the whole thing today, uh, he talks about the trials that we go through and how even those can make us stronger. But we've got a lot of ground to carry this morning, so we're going to skip a couple verses and come down to verse 14. Peter writes, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Many of you, especially if you have heard the last couple messages here, you've heard this over and over. But it's important to remember that the core concept of holiness in the scripture is all about being set apart for a specific purpose. It's holy because it's, it's the dishes you only use on Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? It's holy because it's 
the car that your grandpa gave you. And it doesn't even run, but that's the, your favorite car. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that kind, it's special, it's different. And when we're talking about God, obviously it's going to have to include power and purity and a bunch of other things because all that makes God unique and set apart and all that makes us unique and set apart because of him absolutely has to include all those things. But the core idea is that we're set apart for a purpose. Peter continues, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Once again, he's talking about living as someone who has started life over completely, just like Jesus taught, but he's talking about living it here in this life. Heaven's on the other side of this. This is hope that he's giving us for right here, right now. And it's important to remember when he says, purify yourselves, We cannot completely purify ourselves. It's only the blood of Jesus and everything that follows after that that makes that possible. But on the other side of that, since we have been reborn, since we are the children of God, since we have been washed by his blood and cleansed and are in the presence of God with our sins forgiven and his Holy Spirit in us, on the other side of that, we continue to purify ourselves by becoming more and more and more 100%. Pure in the sense of there's nothing but Jesus left. Does that make sense? One way or another, we become more and more. Every choice we make in the direction of who God has made us to be, in the things he's calling us to do, away from the things he tells us to leave behind, makes us more and more pure, especially in the sense of we absolutely 100% belong to Jesus. So chapter two starts like this. Therefore, in light of all of that stuff, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. How many have ever spent some time around a newborn baby? Okay, so you will really understand this. Newborn babies, for all the potential that they hold, they're really pretty selfish, aren't they? And they will do anything to get what they want. They can't even hardly articulate what they want. But if they need cleaned up, they will, they will pester you till you clean them up. If they're hungry, they will pester you till you feed them. If they want help, they will pester you. Are you following me on this? They are desperate to get what they know they need. And Peter is saying, listen, You're not controlled any longer by just your instincts and your desires. You're not controlled by that anymore. Jesus has set you free. But like newborn babies, like you're starting life all over again, you need to be just that desperate for the things of God. You need to do whatever it takes to make sure that you reach that destination. The main idea of staying out of the sin is not so much just because the sin is bad. It is. God hates it. It's not cool. But the core idea, the deepest idea behind it all is all the other stuff he's calling you into is so good. And you've been given a chance 
to go that way. And like a newborn baby, you need to be craving that. If that's what you really need, that's who you really are now, you need to do whatever it takes to make sure you go there. He says, because you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Uh, All of this is building on the traditions we've been looking into in the last several weeks. And by traditions, I mean the, the heritage that we have, the rich heritage we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. How all of it pointed to Jesus. I hope this is super familiar to everybody who's been hearing this the last couple of weeks. I hope it's at least a little familiar to anybody. It's the first time you're hearing it, but here at least, but let's just say it. Here we go. In the Old Testament, there was this tabernacle and it symbolized how God saves people, period. The first thing they had to encounter was the altar where there was a blood sacrifice. All throughout the scripture, you see blood. There has to be a blood sacrifice to pay for sin. In the New Testament, that's ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, his death and resurrection. The next step was only for the priests. Now notice Peter says, now we are a nation of priests. We are all priests. We all help other people interact with God. But back then, it was only a few people that got to do this. They got to take the next few steps, but they had to go through a ritual cleansing It didn't really cleanse them, but because it was in obedience to God, God would say, okay, you're cleansed and let them come into his presence. And then the rest of the whole spot, if that could stay up just a little bit longer, the next, the rest of that spot was the holy place in the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that represented the presence of God himself. And through Jesus and his death on the cross, through Uh, baptism and all of the ways that God cleanses us on the other side of baptism even, we now get forgiveness and we now get the presence of God within us. We are walking, talking, holy places. We are the tabernacle. Isn't that crazy? But the good news of that is wherever we go, so does the spirit of God. Wherever we go, that becomes a holy place that becomes holy ground, which is another reason why it's so important to make sure we stay out of the woods and on the path that God has given to us. See, Jesus replaced the curse of sin with the blessing of righteousness. If you're following along, this is the first time you can write something down unless you're just drawing pictures or writing random things down all around it. And then please always feel free. But the dream of this, especially if it's your first time here today, the dream of these little Bible study guides is that you actually not only listen while I talk, but you take these home and you reread those scriptures, the whole scriptures, and let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Hopefully you talk to some other people in small groups. You figure out some way to really connect and live out these truths. But the first blank you could fill out is curse. If you would, would you say this out loud with me? The curse of sin is replaced. We'll finish that sentence in a second. But we are like the priests in the tabernacle. In this new covenant under Jesus, we're like those priests. We help people connect with God. We help each other connect with God. And like they would walk all day long back and forth between the altar and the basin and the presence of God and the altar and the basin and the presence of God. And all day long, every day, they were living out 
this picture, even they didn't understand, but all day long, they're living it out. All day long, they're living out this story of how God saves people. That's us too. Every day, we're supposed to be living this out. We should be walking, talking pictures of what it looks like. I love how Dr. Tony Evans describes the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, of course, are the first part, first verses of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But he says that they are the principles of God's kingdom in the daily lives of believers. The principles of God's kingdom in the daily lives of believers. In other words, it's not just a pretty poem. Blessed are the meek. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not just something that you recite. He's saying, you want to really be blessed? You need to be meek every day. You're going to walk this out. You're going to live this story. Let's look at what Jesus himself said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, what Jesus does is he replaces the curse with the blessing. And the curse of being poor in spirit, feeling like you can't do it on your own, feeling like you need help. He's like, yeah, guess what? That's the starting line. You can't do it on your own. But guess what? With me, you're welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. What do we need most when we're mourning? We need community. Guess what we find in Jesus and in Jesus's people? Community. You're going to be comforted. You're still going to mourn, but you're going to be comforted when you mourn. The curse is replaced by a blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This word translated meek here is the same exact word that we translate as gentleness in other places. For example, I am um, the fruit of the spirit includes gentleness and self-control in the list. Most of all, it's Jesus himself. We'll come to that in just a second, but let me just one more time. Here's this metaphor we've been using this whole series. I hope this makes as much sense to you as it does to me. But God's rules are best understood as guardrails, not walls, not fences. They're not meant to entrap us. They're not meant to keep us in. They're not meant to keep the bad guys out. They're meant to keep us on track. They're meant to help us focus, meant to help us reach the destination that he's calling us into. And yes, if there's a cliff on the other side of that guardrail, that's real danger. And yes, yes, he needs you to stay within those walls, but the, the guardrails are there to help us do something good. They're there to help us reach stuff that we could never reach on our own but we can reach with him and together. We can't be any of these things in the Beatitudes without Jesus, but Jesus himself helps us do it. And Jesus said things like this, for I am gentle and humble. You can find rest for your souls in me. Same word as meek. Matthew 21, five, Jesus says, Uh, Jesus shows up, I'm sorry, in Matthew 21, he shows up riding on a donkey and he intentionally says, I am fulfilling a prophecy from the Old Testament that says, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, meek, riding on a donkey. He, He was very intentional about this. And then again, his Holy Spirit in us helps us have that fruit 
on a supernatural level that we could never have on our own. We can become meek or gentle, which means, by the way, to be strong enough that you have to be careful. Back, back to the baby people. How many, how many, let me see you again, that been around babies at all. Okay. You know what it's like, right? It's terrifying to hold a newborn baby because you love them and you want to take care of them, but you know that one misstep, you could just break them, right? It's terrifying. And so you're, you're careful, Every one of my four boys now are bigger than me. They're all like at least several inches. And some of them are like just really big. But the thing is, when they were all born, they were tiny. I don't, I don't, I, they have to be careful with me now, but I had to be so careful with them <laughs> back then. Because it's gentleness, meekness is not about being a wimp. It's about knowing that you have to be careful. And guess what? Brothers and sisters, we have the strength of almighty God in us. We have the spirit of God. We are the walking, talking, holy places on this planet. We need to be careful. Not just careful not to do bad stuff, but careful to be welcoming. Welcoming people into that. Making sure that we're living out that story every day. Careful that we don't accidentally hurt people in all of our exuberance and joy or, or whatever else. We got to be gentle. Colossians 3, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see these themes all the way through the scripture. Back to Jesus himself, Matthew 5, 7 and 8. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not just the people who don't cause waves, the people who create peace. There's a difference. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, Tony Evans, I love how he he explains the idea of this here, what I just read. He says, those who pursue unity among the body of Christ and who reject division and gossip and all kinds of confusion... Those are the peacemakers. Those are the people who are defined by this. They are the people who are daily living out the Beatitudes. So Jesus replaces the curse of sin with the blessing of fellowship. And by fellowship, we're talking about fellowship with each other and with God himself. Let's say that by the blessing of true fellowship. Another symbol you see all the way through the scriptures, and it's mostly, it's one of those, God was just so good at this. There's so, a lot of these symbols are just also just straight up history. It's just what happened, but there's just, there's some intention that you can just see. There's a lot of really important things that happen on a mountain, for example, throughout the Bible. The, the ark landed on a mountain, and that's just kind of logical. That'd be the first thing that when the water went down. But uh, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, whatever you want to call it, um, there's so much that happened there. And even Jerusalem itself was built on a mountain, Mount Zion. And they found so much significance in that. The idea of having to go up a mountain, they called it the mountain of the Lord. And especially once they built the temple on there and the tabernacle became a more permanent shelter with the same exact pattern going on all day long, every single day. 
That's why we see things like this in the Psalms. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And they knew there's no way we can't do this on our own. Brothers and sisters, it was not an accident that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount on a mount. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Back then, whereas nowadays I, I stand to talk to you and sometimes pace back and forth. Back then, when it was time for the person to really, they'd stand and read the scripture and then they'd sit down. That's when you knew they were going to talk to you. So here's Jesus. He climbs the mountain and he sits down. They go, oh, he's going to say something important. He's using all of this symbolism very intentionally. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. That's what we've been looking at. See, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. And it's through Jesus that we all have a chance to live it out. It's only through him. Hebrews 7, 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's the priest that we've been talking about in the tabernacle for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron if you don't know the the story of Melchizedek you need to look that up you can google it or go to biblegateway.com just split through your bible you can find it it's great it's a really interesting character that is a type of Christ. He was a king and also a priest. And all we know for sure about him is that when Abraham won a big victory, he went and it wasn't really communion, but they shared a meal together in honor of God. And he gave his tithe from everything he'd got from that conflict to Melchizedek. Abraham did. We're not really sure what's going on there, but it's cool. And then later on, it says that there was, there was a prophecy that the Messiah would be in the order of King Melchizedek. And then Jesus did that because he was the Messiah. Hebrews 7 also says this, for it is witness of him, that's Jesus, you are a priest forever, like in the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Several times over the last several weeks, I've I've compared a broken way to look at God's rules to kind of the, the Santa idea of the naughty list and the nice list. But the original law that God gave us was actually intentionally kind of like that. Thou shalt not and thou shalt and it wasn't that it was wrong and it wasn't that he was trying to mislead anybody, but he, did, he wanted to do two things. He wanted to reveal his values, but he also wanted to reveal, you can't do it on your own. If all you're trying to do is not do the thou shalt nots and do some of the thou shalts, you're never gonna get it all. That's why there had to be the sacrifices and all of that other stuff going on. He wanted them to feel that, to know that, to learn that. But brothers and sisters on the other side of Jesus, there is the hope that we can actually be transformed. There is the hope that we can actually little by little, not just get a fresh start and forgiveness, but little by little be transformed till we're actually like him. Little by little, we start to see things his way. Little by little, we start to feel what he feels when he sees righteousness and what he feels when he sees sin. 
Little by little, we start to become more like him. That's the power of the new covenant. The old one pointed to it. The new one delivers it. That's why Jesus summed up all of the laws so simply. He said things like this all the time. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's the beauty. This is where it goes. This is where all of this has been heading. This is where we're trying to head more than ever before as a church. This is where we're trying to go more than ever before as individuals and families. This is the hope. We create holy places together. Instead of us all just sheltering in our little buildings and trying hard to not let the world come in, what God has called us to do is to flow like those rivers of living water that flowed out of Ezekiel's vision of the temple, to to be like Jesus who touched sick people and healed them instead of getting sick. He's wanting us to reach out. He's wanting us to create holy spaces everywhere we go to take not only our forgiveness and our new start, but the power of him himself everywhere we go. I mean, humans have always done this, sometimes in silly ways. I mean, I think it's really cool that there's an American flag on the moon, but it's kind of silly too, you know what I mean? Like, ha, 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 this belongs to us. Does it really? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like we always want to claim territory, but God is saying, hey, listen, it all belongs to me, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to reclaim it. We're going to make everything holy ground. Your home, your bedroom, your bathroom, every place that you go, where you are when you're right in front of your computer, wherever your computer is, whatever tablet you use or phone you use to access the internet, that needs to be holy ground. Wherever you go out to eat, wherever you go to do stuff, whatever entertainment, that's holy ground. And yes, it matters that we don't just destroy what Jesus has been doing in us. Yes, it matters that we don't just pile trash and all the beauty he's put in here. But, but so often we just get obsessed with that. Well, which, which things are the trash? Which things are the trash? That's not the point. The point is we're supposed to be declaring holy ground everywhere we go, planting the flag of the king everywhere we go. That's a completely different game, and that's the game we've been called to play. We restart life on his terms, and then everywhere we go becomes holy ground. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. We say that all the time. We're like, so, so that means he's present here. Yes, it does mean that. But what he's saying is, I'm on your team. You get even two people together to do something I told you to do, guess who's your quarterback? Me, right now. Let's go. Let's do this. I am right there every time you even try this. You even get two or, look how many more we got than two or three, even this morning. God only knows how many people are joining us through the, through the internet or who might see this weeks or years from now. Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm with you. Does anybody remember that airplane that landed on I-40 a couple weeks ago? Remember that? That was so weird. 
Felt like a real big derail there, but this is actually going somewhere. It, it, was, it was really cool that nobody got hurt, really cool that that worked, really cool that it all worked out. I think Billy Canarium got some, his own pictures. This is one I got off the internet. That was just craziness. That's, that's just, I, I can't believe that. But there's something really kind of sad and pathetic when you see an airplane on a highway. Just nothing's working. That, not, that's not what any of that is supposed to be doing, Right? The cars aren't supposed to be sitting there. There shouldn't be an airplane there. It, it, it worked, but that's not what it was. So, and, and, and it's actually kind of sad to me whenever I see an airplane on the ground at all. Because everything about an airplane is designed so it can do what? Everybody say it with me. Yeah, see? You see it fly. I think one of the saddest things ever is whenever you see a, a whale get beached. And I don't know if we've got a We do have a picture. There we go. And it's so inspiring. People try to help it out and try to get it out there. And they'll get big machines or like just tons and tons of people and try and get it back in the ocean. Because part of what's sad is, you know, it's sad when anything dies, but they're just so majestic and so powerful when they're in their element. You see a, you see a whale out there in the ocean, like literally almost our whole planet is water. They got the run of the whole thing, but then they get stuck on the beach. They're helpless. That's the kind of stuff that Jesus is trying to keep us out of why there's guardrails in the first place. There is so much freedom that God gives us. Remember all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you can have any of the trees in the whole planet, just not this one, this one guardrail. Man, did they mess that one up. But that's the same way it is for us. We're like, well, why not that tree? Why not? Why can't I? We're the, we're the whale. Why can't I go to the beach? I have a right to go to the beach. What makes the beach sinful? Didn't God make the beach too? Yeah, but you're a whale. Does that make sense? Do you guys see what I'm saying? And, and I love how Ermin McManus says it. He says the creative act. This is from his book called The Artisan's Soul. It's about creative people and artists and stuff. He says the creative act is not a struggle to be free of limitations, but a demonstration that when we embrace our limitations, creativity has no boundaries. Uh, how, many, how many really creative people are out there? You love to paint, draw, write, do something creative, build cars from scratch, something you like to do, carpentry, something creative. Okay, a lot of, especially you guys will understand what I'm talking about, but there is something magical about a blank piece of paper and a pencil. If you're a creative person, there is something incredibly just hypnotic about a blank canvas and some paint and a few brushes. There is something incredible about a big pile of material and a sewing machine and a little bit of time. Are you following me on this? There is some, if there's a big pile of wood and some tools and a little bit of time, let's go. If you're a creative person, there's all that stuff. But, but if you, if what you've got is wood and some power tools, it's not going to be much of a painting. You know what I'm saying? But when you say, hey, here's what I've got today, I'm going to paint. Sky's the limit. And that's, that's how all of God's rules work. It's not about restricting us as much as it is freeing us to work. It's like uh, trains are so powerful on tracks and so useless off of the tracks. It's just how it works. So here's the challenge here at the end today. As we wrap up today, here's, here's how I hope and pray, literally hope and pray for each one of us that we can apply these things. First of all, the curse of sin 
needs to be replaced in a very specific way for each of us. And I'm telling you, if you are not a believer, you need Jesus' help. You need his help. You cannot stay away from the sin and the curse of sin without his help. You need to give your life to Jesus today. But if you are a believer and you're still trapped in some sort of a sin, let me tell you something. You don't have to be. Jesus can replace that for you. But you've got to name it. You've got to confess it. You've got to throw it at his feet once and for all. And you probably should do something really dramatic. You should probably not subscribe to Netflix anymore, for example. Do do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Like, do something that would help you do it easier. Get rid of it. Just break the habit entirely. Get rid of it so that it can be replaced. But the beauty of it, again, and the power is in Jesus. We only have a little bit of power because he's given it to us and his spirit is living in us. But he replaces the curse of sin with the blessing of true fellowship. And that is where we actually, you need to make a choice there. Instead of doing this, here's what I'm going to do. And again, not in a legalistic way. I've noticed that when I was a kid, every Christian everywhere, you, you just had to pray before every single meal. That was it. Like if you just started eating, somebody was going to slap you or something, or, or God might strike you with lightning. And I've noticed that that's just not quite as a given among all Christians at all times ever anymore. But let me tell you something. You know why we pray before meals? That's not even in the scripture, except Jesus did it. It's not a command. It's just Jesus, whenever he fed people, he would lift it up and thank God for it and then start handing it out. That's where we got that idea. And if you're in a restaurant or whatever else at your home, if you're all by yourself, but you've got something to eat, not everybody on the planet has that. And if you've got something to eat and you take time to thank God for it, guess what you just created right there? Holy ground. That little table you're sitting at, that easy chair you're sitting at, that wherever you are, your car driving down the road is suddenly holy ground because you realize that this was a gift from God. And you're asking him to use that. It's not a sin to not pray before you eat. But what a wonderful thing to claim holy ground even just when we eat a meal. Do you see how different those mindsets are? And that's what we're being called into. Instead of lists, if we've got the guardrails, it, there, there's freedom, there's joy, there's, there's all, wow, I didn't even realize everything that God gave me. I don't know how many of you pray before you go on a long trip. My, my family's always done that. We, we pray for safety and we pray for God's blessings on our fellowship that we'll treat each other well. It's not a sin if you've never done that. It's not because we're just so perfect or anything crazy, but I was raised to do that. And we, we do that because that claims our car is holy ground. And there's something powerful about riding in the car together. Some of our best memories as a family. We do what we do here. We do what we do everywhere because we're claiming holy ground for God. This morning, I'm going to read this one more time, the same verse. And this time, I'd like you to read it with me. 1 Peter 2, 9. And then we're going to invite you to take a step in the direction of Jesus. Whatever you need to do, walk away from something, walk towards something. Just recommit yourself to constantly claiming holy ground in your life and in the life of your families, in the life of your friendships, in the life of the world, and in the life of this church and anywhere else you go. But first, let's say this together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you need to talk privately, come to the back. If you'd like to make a public decision, you can do this. If you just do business with God while we sing, stay where you're at. But let's all take a step in his direction right now.